Blog Talk Radio. speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I think you might have had a little bit of dead air at the beginning. I had some technical issues getting on, but that's okay, because life is not perfect, and we just pick up and move on, (laughs) even when things do not cooperate with us, and unfortunately, that happens, so sorry about that, if that's uh, what you experienced on your end. Maybe I can edit that out, but... That doesn't always work either. All right, let's get going without further ado. Today's show is so relevant. If you are a therapist like me and work with children in birth to three programs or early preschool, I got this question a couple of months ago from a speech language pathologist, and actually I think she might live outside the country. I'm not sure about that, but that's or outside the United States. But that, that, that my point with saying that is this is a this happens to all of us, <laughs> no matter what setting we practice in, whether we're in a home-based program or a center-based program or a school-based program, or even if you are all over the world, this is a pretty universal problem. So, and and I just want to say, if you're listening and if you're a parent, you're going to think, oh no, this show is not relevant for me. It absolutely is because <laughs> this problem is so universal that it doesn't even just apply to therapists. It also affects those of us as parents who are working with late-talking toddlers and preschoolers too. So let me just read her question, and I'm sure you're going to recognize yourself and your own questions and desperation, (laughs) maybe, as you listen to this, and you'll think back and think about kids that you felt like this too. So she says, I work with lots of children under three, ASD and late talkers, and if you are a parent not sure what ASD is, it's autism spectrum disorder. So kids who have been identified or already diagnosed with autism are certainly, I think she probably means kids with including kids with red flags who've not yet been diagnosed. But you know that they are at risk to get that diagnosis. And so she's saying lots of kids under three, and she says, I keep running into the same problem. I start with Hannon and parent education regarding the same. And Hannon is a well-known, well-respected program. Oh, gosh, they've just done so much for our field in early intervention. And they talk a lot about following the child's lead and doing things the kid likes and joining the child, meeting him where he is. So all the same principles that I totally talk about on this show and in every every post, every book, every DVD, every course that I've ever done too. They've just been so influential in our field. And she says, so I start with all of those things. And then she moves on and says, parents generally like the social interaction it can bring. And that's the very best thing about Hannah. And it really teaches you how to use games that children like and routines that they like and really make those interactive so that you and the child learn how to participate together and learn how to um, keep a child's attention and keep him engaged with you rather than just letting him run off and do his own thing and how to really follow a child's um, what they're doing and their interests and their preferences rather than coming in and everything being adult-directed and adult-led. And I think, again, that they started their pioneering work back in the 70s. Certainly Dr. Greenspan has done a lot of work or did a lot of work with that too. And so, so many um, 
wonderful things happen when we implement that approach right at the beginning with children who are not talking. She says, uh, then I work on imitation skills with a toy or with motor movements, and then she says, I also work on task completion. She says, but after this, I get stuck. <laughs> Parents want therapy weekly or every second week. At this time, kids are often saying a few words, but we seem to be doing the same things and going nowhere. And she says, during Hannon, kids play with the same toys, often silent, despite my efforts. And she goes on to put in paragraphs playing at their own agenda. And that's one of the levels of Hannon. It's the first little level where we where we find a lot of our little guys who will go on to be diagnosed with autism. They they're and they're doing their own thing. It really doesn't matter what you're trying to say, what you're trying to do, what you're trying to get them to do, they are really hard to get on your page. So that's where Hannon really, and again, Dr. Greenspan talked and taught us how to get on their pages. She says, so they're still kind of playing at their own agenda. They won't imitate words. Parents are frustrated at this point because they've heard their child say the word in the past. And then she goes on to kind of <laughs> justify what lots of us are feel or think she says and there's usually a lack of motivators and parent reluctance rules out pecs and here she means that the picture exchange system is also a well-known program um, different people different program we were talking about Hannah before but totally different program but it's it's used to help children learn how to communicate with pictures by getting their requests um, giving a way to make requests, so using that symbolic way. And she says, but that doesn't always work for these kinds of kids in, in her experience because they don't have a lot of motivators and parents don't really want to wag around a lot of pictures. And I get that. And we've certainly all worked with parents who feel that way or for whatever reason. PECS, um, even though it's a wonderful evidence-based program, unless we have parents who are on board and super organized, you know, if you're not, if a parent isn't going to embrace that system of practice, it's uh, lots of therapists feel like it's a kind of a waste of therapy time if we only do it one time a week or one time every other week with a kid and then he doesn't use it again. So she's saying that she's saying pretty much, Laura, hey, don't tell me to try pecs because <laughs> we're not doing it. That's not going to work for us. And then she says, I'd be so grateful for any advice or product recommendations for this dilemma. I'm beginning to lose faith at this stage. Sorry to take up so much of your time. And so here, here's what's happening. She's really feeling frustrated. Like, I'm trying. I'm starting with what I know is, is appropriate and it's developmentally where I should be with these kids. I know I should get them interacting. I know I need to teach parents how to do that. And she says, I do that. I'm pretty good at that. We get that going, she said, and then she moves to imitation, which we all know is super, 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 super important because it lays down the foundation for a child to begin to imitate sounds and words, and that's how all of us learn anything as children and even as adults. We watch somebody else do it. That's why YouTube has so exploded <laughs> in this last uh, decade because we like seeing somebody else do what we don't know how to do and then we copy that. And so language is certainly no different and that's how, how children were typically developing. Uh, well, even with atypical uh, developing skills or skills that are developing outside the norm, that is still how children learn how to talk. They hear somebody else say the word and they say it too, but lots of late talkers can't start at that point. We've got to back them way up 
and work on teaching them the whole process of imitation, meaning they watch and then they do. They watch and then they do, whether it be, and, and watch and do comes before listen and say. <laughs> so she's saying, I know how to do that. I know how to get get them with task completion, meaning um, also that she, when they're playing with something, she has them finish it. She's not just... Um, embracing a child who's running around the room from activity to activity and doesn't really stay with anything. So she's working on the attention piece with, hey, we're going to finish this. We're going to get through this entire activity before we move on to something else. And that is critical because so many of our little late-talking friends have super short attention spans. Again, that's a root cause for why language learning is not progressing as it should. They're not able to settle down and focus enough to pay attention to the words you're saying, and then to link meaning with what they are doing and with the concrete things that they see right in front of them. If they are constantly on the move and on the go and not completing activities, it's a real barrier and a real um, hindrance to them learning what words mean and then learning how to use those words to communicate. So she's got all of her foundation pieces in place. She knows what to do. But she's a little bummed that it doesn't always work out as beautifully in real life as we think it should <laughs> or as we expect that it should uh, based on uh, what's on paper or, again, what's that, that I don't want to say academic, but our clinical applications. And, again, she knows what to do. And, boy, is her heart in the right place because she's saying, I need more information. I, I want something else to try. There seems to be something missing here. And she's, uh, and again, gets to that emotional piece that lots of us feel when we're in this job with, hey, I want to I be better at this. I want to do what's going to work. She's not blaming this. You know, it's just these kids or it's just this, these parents. She's saying, tell me what else to do. There's, there's got to be something else that I can add that would um, make this easier and ultimately make me more successful in my efforts to help these children who are not communicating and their families who so desperately want to uh, communicate with their children and hear them talk. So, again, if you are a therapist, I think we probably recognize this is pretty common. And let me just say, if you're a therapist and you're listening or you're a parent and you're saying, well, I don't really do the social game piece or mm, I haven't really worked a lot on task completion or, oh, I haven't thought too much about getting them to imitate actions in and toys, that's where you need to start. <laughs> As I said, she already covered all the bases, already covered all these foundational pieces. So if you're not doing those things, boy, her email is a good roadmap for the beginning where to start with kids like this. But her frustration, again, is felt by therapists who are doing these things and who still feel like, oh, there's something missing here. There's got to be more. And let, let me just say, for some kids, those things alone are enough. You get social games going. You teach parents how to really uh, get those circles of communication closed, like Dr. Greenspan says. And let me just let me just take a second, a personal second here, and let's talk about talking. I just saw this this morning when I was prepping for the show and went back and read this uh, chapter on turn-taking, and I said Dr. Greenspan and his cycles approach, oh, big typo. That's, that's sir, it should be circles of communication there. I'm going to change that in future the next future edition of the book, I, I can't, I 
hate it when I realize that I've made a mistake like that. But, you know, chalk it up. None of us are perfect. And that got through editing, you know, through me and then two editors. And But they don't know. They're not speech pathologists. And I know why I did it. I was working on the speech intelligibility uh, shows, the podcast series that I did this summer at the same time, and reading Hodson's Cycles for Phonological uh, Therapy. And I think I just... Well, I know I just substituted that word, so pardon me for that mistake. And again, if you're in the that first round of people who bought the book, uh, let's talk about talking between October of 2017 and now January of 2018, and you see that, uh, I apologize for that little error. All right, so back to what I'm talking about: uh, focusing on getting the parents who focused on getting that interaction piece going. They that's we've got to teach that. That's just again where we need to be with that kind of uh, thing. And if you're not doing that as a therapist or you haven't paid attention to that as a parent, that's going to make a huge, huge, huge difference uh, with that. So let's move on. Let's talk about, all right, she's already got all these things in place. And, again, if you don't, really think about that list. Really think about what she said she's already doing. Start there. For those of us, again, who've gotten those things in place and we still feel like with some children, oh, I remember my point now. (laughs) With some kids, those things, social games, parent interaction, really getting play going with having kids focus, and that attention piece going with having kids focus on one thing at a time, learn that task completion and participation, really master that better so they're not all over the place. For some kids, that's all it takes. Those kids really take off after that. They start to imitate our actions in play. Then we move them up. They start to imitate some body movements and gestures, and then they start to imitate some little play sounds, and then voila, they move up to the word level, the verbal routine level and the word level, and things move on beautifully. So there are some children for whom just what she has stated in her email works beautifully. But there's some kids who need more. So let's talk about what we can do when those kinds of things aren't giving us the results that we want. And so I immediately said, for kids like this, I just go straight to inserting a lot of verbal routines during play and during the social games that we're already doing. So let's say that she's working with a little guy, and let's say that she's taught him 10 to 15 social games. And this is a big part, too. Sometimes we'll say that we're doing, um, the, getting social games going and that we're implementing Hannah, but then we look and we've only, done, we've only gotten two or three little rituals or verbal routine or social games going, and that's not really enough. And so some, that, that's like when some therapist will say to me, well, we're signing, and I'll say, well, how many signs does he use? And she'll say, oh, two to three. That's not enough, guys. <laughs> And that to me seems like, you know, what I want to say, but I'm, I'm often, I often will have a filter in place and don't just blurt this out. But what I want to say is, again, why just stop there? <laughs> it's working. Why would you just say, okay, he's got two or three things. Let's move on to the next little goal. That's not enough. We've got to give children richness, depth. So if you're working with a kid, and let's say you've taught them, They like to play a hiding game with you, whether that's running away from you and hiding and then you find them, or something like Chase, that would be two little social games. Or let's say that their parents have a little song that they sing with them that the kid likes a lot and he lights up for. 
that would be your third little social game, and then you just say, okay, that's enough social games. No. I mean, I think 10 to 15 are the minimum. And I'll tell you the truth. I've had children that I've worked with before that have been so disengaged with me unless we were doing social games that I'll, I, I remember one time sitting down for this sweet little boy named Zachary who is probably, gosh, 12 by now. And at his IEP, I sat there as he was transitioning from early intervention to um, and uh, school services, we were doing his IEP, and they were asking me what I was doing with him, and I said, social games are really my only in with him. He's, he's not, his motor skills aren't great, so he can't really play with toys that well. But look, he's got all these social games. And they said, well, how many does he have? And I sat there, guys, and it was like 50, 55 social, social games, verbal routine, or not verbal routines, but verbal uh, rituals, rituals, that's the word I'm looking for. But, I mean, I went through that list, and I thought, that is amazing. And when that happened to me, that's the day I learned <laughs> that we can't just leave it. Even sometimes for some kids, I think 10 to 15 social games or different little routines or rituals that, that parents can develop during the day, I think that 10 to 15 should be the minimum. So if you are using that kind of approach and, and you're just still even down there at seven or eight games and you're thinking, what else do I do? Don't look for another treatment strategy yet. Keep adding those social games. Keep getting those pieces in place. And why would I say that? Because you're teaching engagement. But you know what else a kid's learning during that? He's also developing some great memory skills, which would be part of his cognitive repertoire. He's really remembering the routine, remembering this part comes first and this part comes next and this part is last and I know what mom does in this and I, my therapist plays this with me too. So he's got, again, some, some uh, association going on, which, you know, he can take the same little routine or game that he's learned and uh, carry that over and generalize that. That's all a big part of cognition. So you've got some cognitive things going there. If you have helped him learn how to... Um, do his own part in those little games. He's also probably got the beginning of gestures or um, actions that he does that are communicative. So you're also working on gestures within and teaching gestures and, and imitating those actions within the context of those social games. You're also probably targeting receptive language or what he understands. What When you say this, he knows to do this because he's internalized that meaning. He, he, he gets it. He knows what you're saying. So he follows the the directions or he follows what comes next there and again he's he's learned what those words mean he knows what to do next so look at what you're targeting just within the context of a social game and so if you expand that if you take your little two or three social games and by next month you know you double that and you have four to six social games and then by the next month you double that again and you have 8 to 12 social games and just keep going with that. If that's what works, if you can't, if you feel like, you know, these are my barriers to play and I can't really get anything going with play and I can't really get, um, I'm not hearing any words yet and I'm not, do, don't worry about it. Just keep building that whole encyclopedia of social games for that kid and for that family. And you talk to a parent and you say, hey, this is what's working. This is where he's most engaged with us and he's most interactive with us, and he's not ready to talk until he really masters and hones the skill.
skill, and he's telling us that he needs more practice with this because we're not seeing him look at us or participate with us or just, again, completely light up and be so excited at other times during the day or at other times when we're trying to talk to him unless we have him in a social game. So say to a parent, can you see how this is working? Can you see how we need to take this concept of making this little routine and how we need to just use it all day long? So let's look at how we can get this going during bath time. Let's look at what we can do, how we can develop a little social game, or I kind of move that into saying ritual or a social ritual into mealtime and into every time you change his diaper and you say, we've got to get these old things. You know, this is how he learns. This is where we see his very best. So let's just expand that. So that's certainly an, uh, a recommendation that I would make to this therapist is, okay, don't just stop there. You're, you're saying that that's working. Just keep it going. Teach more. And if you need help with that, <laughs> Get Teach Me to Play With You. And, again, the hand and stuff is fantastic, too. Get that if you want to get started. But here's why I wrote Teach Me to Play With You back in 2010, because I already knew the hand and stuff, and I loved it, and I used it, and it worked for me, and it worked for my families. But sometimes some kids needed more, and a lot of times it wasn't the kid who needed more direction. It was the parent. So I started really writing, taking the little social routines like peekaboo, like ride a little horsey, like row, row your boat, like wheels on the bus, and wrote out really specific step-by-step instructions for parents. You know, when this happens, do this. When he says this or when you want him to say this, try this. And really wrote that out in a more sequential um I want to say recipe, but it's not really like that. But but I got I gave it more structure. So if you're finding that you're struggling with social games or you just need more, you just need more ideas, Teach Me to Play With You is a great resource for you and a great tool to be able to take those little routines that, again, you've already started, but you're just not quite sure how to make it as effective as you need it to be. Get that book. Uh, and, again, that's my book, a little, little little self-promotion, little advertisement here, um, because that, again, that's, that builds off those wonderful concepts that, that we know um, that work for kids. But if you need some more ideas for how to, how to get that going, or you just, you, you know, this is what I say during courses that I teach live. I say every therapist should have 10 to 15 social games that you are just ready to go with at any moment. And so I say in that course, write down your games. And so if you are a therapist right now and if you're listening to this, don't do it if you're driving or on the treadmill. (laughs) Since that's what lots of therapists tell me they do during the show is exercise or drive. You can't do it now, but the next time you stop or the next time you're, you know, having a little break or your cup of coffee or tonight or this weekend or wherever, make a list. Don't just think about it in your mind because you will not be as specific and as detailed as you need to be. Make a list of your social games. Or this week, keep data on yourself when you're treating a kid and say, how many different social games? Sometimes therapists will realize, well, Lord, I just have three or four social games. And I, I, One therapist said to me one time, I just wear it out. I just do the same thing over and over. No wonder kids are so dang bored because I'm not introducing anything new or any new variety. And, again, if kids like it and if you can keep a kid's attention with doing the same three or four, more power to you. I mean, that is fantastic. But usually to be, have a solid foundation in this, you need 10 to 15 different ones that you're doing. So look at that and make sure that you're teaching enough of that. And so what I'm saying to her then 
is look at your social games and make sure not only that you're doing enough, but make sure they have a lot of the verbal routines. Now, I have stumbled all over my words during this show trying to say I'm meaning social games and then I'm inserting verbal routines because in my mind they're the same thing. So if you are playing a game like Ring Around the Rosies, you say the same things at the same time every single time you play. That's what a verbal routine is. It's an established pattern that you're using. You're using the same words, usually the same intonation. Uh, sometimes they're highly contextual, meaning that they're tied to a certain routine, meaning that every time you, let's say, push a child on a swing, that every time you're there swinging, you were saying the same thing. You may be counting. You may be saying something like push, 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 or push, wee, push, wee, push, wee. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter as long as you keep it really, really consistent, and that's what a verbal routine means. You say the same things over and over and over and over again. So, with your social games that you're doing, be sure that you're really sticking to that same script so that a kid can learn that. And so kids that are like this, especially kids that are on the spectrum or have um, those red flags, like sameness. They like predictability. That's their strength. That's why so many of our little guys kind of get stuck in their own ways of doing things. And so when you try to introduce something new, flexibility is hard for them. So what we're kind of doing here is taking that core um, part of what they like and how they learn, and we're just maximizing that. So you be sure that you are so predictable yourself in what you're saying. And a lot of those little guys who are on the road to being verbal, that's how they first begin to talk. It's in the context of a verbal routine. And if we, we will link it to what they already like to do. So we link it to the social game that they already like. And we link it to the toys that they're already playing with that they're not including you on yet. <laughs> they're just, again, she said, playing at their own agenda. So usually what happens in this scenario is a parent sitting with a kid and he's playing with something. Let's say he's playing with trains, and the parent might be doing a beautiful job of modeling language and really enriching that child's language environment. So they are talking. They're narrating what's going on. But for kids, so many of those kinds of kids, it's just blah, blah. They don't, they're not really processing it. They're, not, they're really, again, doing their own thing. And they're not going to respond or pop out any new words during that unless you get serious about making that repetitive enough and predictable enough so that they will join you. They know what to say, and that's when they join in. And so remember, a verbal routine, too, usually starts where we say it and say it and say it and say it and say it, and then we start to pause so that a kid can fill that in. So let's go back to our example where a parent is watching a child play with trains, and we're saying, hey, we want to insert some verbal routines into this so that it becomes predictable and so that he, hopefully, fingers crossed, <laughs> we're all praying, will try to blurt out a word or insert a word. And so you might just come up with some things. So let's just say he's rolling it around the tracks. Again, Sometimes these just develop and you, you watch. You don't have a certain routine that you use going in, although that's fine, but you just watch what a kid does. And then if he has repetitive play, you might come up with a repetitive verbal routine to go with this. So if a kid is, let's say he's moving the train 
going in circles around his tracks. So you might, you know, say something like round and round and round and stop. And then you push your hand on that train and you say the stop part. And, again, a kid might get a little bit mad. But if you keep it fun and exciting and he knows you're joking and you're right down there with him and then you take it off, take your hand off right away and then the next time he starts rolling it in the circle again, you say round and round and round and stop. Again, keep playing it, keep doing it. Over time you'll pause. Put your, you know, you'll say round and round and round and, you know, and again you give that little anticipatory gasp there and you still slam your hand down on it or wait before you do and look at him expectantly. A lot of kids will pop out stop. And it's just because they have heard you say it enough. They have, they expect it. It's like it happens without them even having full control over it. That's the beauty of a verbal routine. It's in there for them. And again, that's how so many kids start to talk. So look at that and see if that's not something that you can get going. If you can't get those words going, back up and just do some little play sounds in there. And uh, something like, um, Woo woo, you know, round and round and round and woo woo, you know that choo choo example that we just did, or animal sounds, or little words like uh oh, or beep beep, or you know, for the break sounds. Sometimes words, real words, are too hard for kids, and they need some in between steps. So introduce lots of those earlier level play sounds during those verbal routines, and a lot of times. When I've tried to move on from what we've already gotten going in play and from what we've already gotten going in social games, and I think, again, oh, we're done with all that. I'm moving on to something new. That's where I lose kids, and it's because I've tried to go too far too fast. I haven't stayed with what's worked for them. So look at what you're currently doing. Look at what's working and just think, how can I just take that one little baby step further? How can I get what I want him to do inserted into this routine? How can I make what's already working even better? And, again, that varies from kid to kid. I can't just give a whole lot of general recommendations here. You've got to take what a kid likes. You've got to take, you know, again, the little games that he's already playing and think, what can I do to get a word in there or get a sound in there that he can imitate, that I can increase his verbalizations? Another thing that I I do here is take words that parents have said that a kid has used occasionally or you know one time and then never again and then I think how can I insert that in this verbal routine how can I get that in a play activity that he already likes now you can certainly do it with something new if mom says oh boy one time you know we were driving in the car a few weeks ago and he just blurted out balloon and <laughs> I guess he saw one or I haven't heard him say that again. I don't know where it came from. Boy, when a parent tells me that, I think, well, guess what we're playing with next time? I'm going to stop, and we're going to have some balloons in here, and not just one balloon. I mean, I might bring in a helium balloon. I might bring in some balloons that we blow up. Or uh, ask a parent to get those things or say, hey, do you have any of that? That might be a good idea. You know, I'll say, do you have any book you know if he likes books already do you have any books that have balloon in them you know and if it's a kid who likes apps you know oh don't get me started but I might say <laughs> do you have balloon on that app let's see what we can do let's see how we can get that word back because we know that the child has the capacity to say it because he already said it once and so we are going to set the stage so that we can hear that over and over and over and so many kids need mass practice before they really own a word before they can really use it and so that they understand what it means and so that it that they can say it uh voluntarily instead of it looking not looking like it's an accident 
or just um, reflexive. And so think about that too. Take that list of words. If a parent says to me, he said this, you know, we'll go through that. And I'm really careful to say to a parent, all right, now, I don't want you to count this as part of his vocabulary until we hear it over and over and over. Sometimes a parent will come in for an eval or, you know, early in the therapy process and They'll say the kid has 25 words, and then I won't hear anything, the whole assessment, and I'll say, gosh, you know, you said he had 25 words, but I, can't, I didn't hear anything. And um, so, so tell me, let's talk about this list. Let's talk about when you've heard these words. And I'll realize that mom has been such a great recorder of every single peep, the utterance that this child made that she counted, you know, words she heard six months ago one time. You know, she's counting that as part of his 25-word vocabulary. And so you have to explain to a parent that we need consistency and frequency matters. And so you'll say, you know, I'm not saying that he doesn't know that word or can't say that word because he's done it, but we really shouldn't include it as part of his vocabulary tally if you have a parent who's kind of obsessed with that until we're hearing it more and more and more often. And parents get that, you, you know, and again, to, to borrow a term from um, – the great Pamela Marshalla, she would call those pop-out words. And parents get that. They get that, you know, boy, he, did, he doesn't really own that word yet. That just kind of popped out. So we've got we've to really work on it and get it so that he can say it. And it, it's more frequent before we can really count that. And so talk to parents about that. But get that list of pop-out words that he or she have used in the past and really figure out how you can bring those words into the activities that you're using, and not only in therapy but with mom, and say, okay, you heard the word water. Three weeks ago he said water when he was in the bathtub. So you say to mom, I want you to use the word water a lot when you're, he's in the bathtub, but also let's think about when he's washing his hands, you're washing his hands during the day when you're in the kitchen and he's in there too, turn on the water. Just bombard him with the word water and tell the parent, this is what I say too, is he's got to hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it, and it's got to be really um, setting the stage there so that you are expecting him to say it, but you're not really in his face saying, say water, tell me water, what's this? Say water. I know you can say water. It doesn't work like that because that's too much pressure for lots of our little guys. So they just have to say water. And then, again, that expectant looking or even something like a phonemic cue where mom goes, well, you know, and the first sound of that, the W in that word, that that might kind of get him started too. Or the verbal routine where mom might, might just kind of make something up, you know, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, water, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, water. And then, again, if she does that for weeks and, you know, she does it seven or eight times a day, over time she can sing, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, <gasps> And then a lot of kids will pop out water. So, again, think about how you can tie their pop-out words into verbal routines. And it can't just be you one time a week in therapy. You've got to figure some of these things out and then teach a parent how to do it. Or you might say, if you don't want to be quite that directive and you want parents to have a little bit more ownership and you think they're creative enough and educated and into therapy enough to know how to do it, you might say, okay, what do you, you know, this week – 
his two pop-out words, you said one time he said up and one time he said go. So let's think about how often we can work this word in and how we can make this a verbal routine. And so you sit and you think. And again, with them. And you say, I want you to come back to me with some ideas for that this week. Just think about how, how you can make up and go in a verbal routine. Well, already I know a lot of you are thinking, go, ready, set, go. Yeah, but sometimes, and that's great. But you want to give a parent kind of a gimme <laughs> so that they feel some success. And, of course, you know they're going to say that. You might even say, you know, I know you're thinking the obvious, ready, set, go, and that's fantastic. And if you want to go with that, let's use that. But if you can come up with something else, that's great too. Or if you find yourself saying that word in a different context, let's go with that. And so really give some parents, again, if you think that they're that, that they – would like that and would follow through with that. But, again, let me just say, some parents' learning style is they want you to tell them exactly what to do. They want you to say, say this, do this, try this, and they look at you as the expert, and that's okay, too. Don't feel like that you have to have every single parent come up with every single strategy on their own. And that's the – I love the consultative model in that – well, let me just say there are lots of things about the consultative model, meaning that we just talk with parents and don't do a lot of direct treatment. There are a lot of things about that that are absolutely fantastic because parents do need to be working on language all day, every day, but they're late talkers, not just during therapy. And sometimes when we weren't really embracing that parent education role at its fullest, when we were just kind of doing our thing and saying, okay, see you next week, that didn't work for lots of people. And so lots of families and so lots of children. And so then when they would come back and then, you know, no change week after week after week. And so we, we researchers started looking at we've got to teach parents how to do it. Parents have to know how to do it. We've got to give, empower them so that they know that they are the greatest agents of change in their child's life, not the therapy setting and not the therapist. What happened with that, though, is I think sometimes the pendulum has swung so far the other way that we think, well, we have to let parents come up with everything. And, with you know, when I've done those courses where we're really listening to parents and we're, we're leading them and, and asking the right questions, that's all fantastic. But I've had some parents who just look me straight in the face and say, Laura, <laughs> tell me what to do. I can come up with this, but isn't that what you're for? And usually it's a dad who will kind of say that. They just kind of cut through all the... You know, I want to say BS. I hope that doesn't offend you. And I'm not saying that all our therapy talk and our coaching and our consulting is BS. I'm not saying that at all. But sometimes a parent will just kind of cut to the chase and say, hey, just tell me what to do. I don't want to come up with it. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm paying you. So for those parents, just give them a whole bunch of ideas. But for other parents, you will just kind of lead them through that process and say, what are some things you want to say? And a lot of times, I'll tell you the truth, parents have taught me more about using these little routines and the cutest little things and things that work with children beyond their own. And so listen to these ideas that parents are coming back with because sometimes you'll get things as therapists that you never, ever would have thought of. All right, so that was what we're going to do. The first thing is we're going to try to turn so many things into verbal routines using simple words and lots of play sounds because those kids and exclamatory words, those kids like, again, wow and wee and um, you know, oh boy, those little things that we kind of, even things like yikes and, um, you know, uh, oh, oh no, you know, even words that would be kind of negative, they don't all have to be exciting and uh, those kinds of things. But think about how you can put those little words, insert them. And here's the rationale for that. So many of our late talkers, when they first come to us and parents 
are bringing them because they know that their language development isn't what it should be, the only things that they say are those kinds of exclamatory words and little play sounds. And so a mom might say, well, he can, he has three little animal sounds, and he'll make a car sound, and occasionally he'll say, um, you know, oh, no, because that's what I say all the time. And you know, they'll tell you a little story that'll say, or or he'll say, you know, an expletive or a cuss word because, you know, that's what my husband says when he gets mad and my child has learned that and I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but you might hear it. And so, again, they are, that's what's easy for them. They're telling you the level they can be successful. So when a kid comes to you with lots of those words or, you know, even five or six, don't dismiss it. Use it because that you're meeting him where he is. That's where he can be successful right now, that's where he, that's what gets his attention, that's what he can say. Real words, for whatever reason, are just beyond his reach. And so he needs them to be tied to context, and he needs them to have emotion, and he needs them to be shorter and easier to say than uh, single words or more traditional words. So think about that. Think about how you can get that going. Also, with play, I wanted to say for kids at your own that are at their own agenda, Use only so that you're not completely left out because remember she said that's a problem when she lets them play by themselves, you know, she disappears. Try to use things that are only interactive, meaning that they need you for part of it. So it might be a wind-up toy or a toy that's a little hard to uh, get going or turn on at the beginning. Do everything you can to make yourself part of that. So if they're playing with a puzzle, you just don't give them all ten pieces. You give just one piece at a, at a time. If they're stacking Legos, you just give one Lego at a time, and you be the giver there so that they have to include you. I've got a whole chapter about this in Let's Talk About Talking with turn-taking and not letting yourself get left out. So look at, look at that and be sure that you are um, including some of those things there. With these kids also, double down on receptive language. And this is what I say to parents of all kids, but really kids with autism or red flags for autism. When they understand more words, they're more likely to use more words. And so do lots of things in play like giving directions. So if he's, and this is how I do it. I'll start it where I do something really silly with what they're playing with. So let's say that they, let's go back to that train example. Let's say a kid likes trains. I will say and take the train and just kind of take it from him or, or one that I have right there if that's going to make him too mad and just say, fly, fly, make this train fly. And again, I am just so into it, <laughs> just flying my train all around in big circles and then putting it right back down and then letting him do his thing and then in a minute grab that that train again and do your whole fly, fly, make the train fly. And so many kids will start to imitate that on their own. If they will accept me giving them a gentle nudge <laughs> to get that going, so they will imitate it, that's fantastic. That's certainly what I'll do. You know, maybe not so, maybe not forcible hand over hand, but enough to kind of get them going. If you are fun enough, kids will think that is funny, and they will like it, and they will try to imitate it too. And then after several weeks or days, you can start to say, oh, make your train fly. Can he fly? And you won't even have to do it. He is going to have practiced that enough and have enough experience with that so that he makes the train fly himself. That's receptive language. That's following a direction. That's teaching him how to do it. So try to get that going during play, too. If it's a kid who likes books and puzzles and pictures like that, 
um, get them to do things with the book or with the picture. So if there's if there's a picture of a baby, you'll say, let's kiss the baby. If there's a flower, you'll smell the flower. If there's a puppy, you'll pat the puppy. And, again, model that and really teach the word first. And then over time, fade that, fade your models so that you're really, really working on receptive language. My last suggestion here is to take with my new book, and I know book. Take the chart from Let's Talk About Talking with these kids that you're stuck with and just walk through that, <clears throat> excuse me, chart of eleven skills, figure out what they can't do, and then use the ideas in the book and the therapy activities in the book to really, really work on that and pick out the missing skills. And there may be things that you've never identified before that you've never worked on before in therapy. Don't panic about that because use the book. <laughs> there are tons of activities and examples in every single chapter, so it's going to teach you how to work on things that maybe you've never, ever worked on before. All right, we're going to leave it at that for today. It's a 45-minute show because I get to be mother of the bride today. Our daughter is uh, getting married. She's graduating from U.K. in May and getting married in August. So exciting, faster than um, I thought it might be at the end of grad school instead of undergrad. But, again, I am being flexible as the mom. But we are going wedding dress shopping today, and my time has kind of gotten away from me. But, as you can tell, I'm elated and very, very excited to go. So we are going to cut this show short. So uh, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks so much for listening, and join me next week for another episode of Teach Me to Talk the Podcast.